0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Telling us that he is the great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep under his care. This morning he is going to give us some more information about those sheep that may surprise you. Look at verse 16 with me. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock... And one shepherd. If you would like to write in your Bibles by verse 16, you can write the word me. Although this primarily refers to Judaism and the Gentiles in general, it also refers to you personally. I don't think we have any idea how big our shepherd's heart is for lost sheep. That is why we must watch out for sectarianism. And what that is, is a thinking that people are suspect concerning their place in the kingdom if they don't believe exactly as we believe on non-essential issues. I have sheep you don't even know about, said Jesus. Now, does that mean that there should never be any division among those who say that they are Christians? Well, absolutely not, and we will deal with that in verse 19. But what I want to deal with initially is we should never refuse fellowship with other Christians if we disagree on non-essential matters. And what is a non-essential matter? They are things like what version of the Bible you should use. Now, don't get me wrong here. There are some terrible versions out there, like the Passion Translation from the New Apostolic Reformation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about dividing over whether you can only use the King James, or is it okay to use versions like the New King James, the New American Standard, or the ESV. Just this week, I accidentally started a firestorm on Facebook when I said the many churches today are all about laser beams, skinny jeans, and fog machines. Well, one lady took exception to that and said that it was a disgrace, and I quote, a slap in the face of God that I don't always wear a suit on Sunday morning. I told her that most of the prosperity preachers dress like they came off a GQ magazine, but their hearts are far from God, and that God is far more concerned about our hearts than what we wear. I also told her that concerning dress the Bible only commands modesty, and that could be done with a suit or sweatpants. Ray Ray nailed it when she posted Colossians three twelve, which tells us as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourself with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's what God wants us to wear. Anyway, I would tell you to go check it out, but she deleted that section of the comments. Other non-essential things are things like music, the Sabbath, and what color carpet in the church, or in our case, concrete. Of course, our floor is multicolored, so just pick a section you like and just focus on that one. But with that said, it may surprise you how many Christians will break fellowship over silly things. Let me give you a verse that, believe it or not, has been used to support this view. This is 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that, they, that none of them were of us. Now, is that saying that if God would lead someone to leave Calvary Chapel, they are out of God's will? Well, of course not. In fact, in context, that verse is speaking of the many false teachers who are already proliferating in the New Testament. Sadly, though, there are some churches that are so myopic in their vision that they believe the only people going to heaven is us four no more. Now shut the door. Anyway, back to our text. Please notice that Jesus says that he must bring them. Not should bring them or might bring them, but he must bring them. On this, James Montgomery Boyce writes, Years ago I preached a sermon entitled The Must of the Master. The message considered this verse we're looking at this morning and three others. First, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This speaks of the necessity of Christ's death. Second, know ye not that I must be about my Father's business? This referred to the whole of Christ's life. Third, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Here the divine necessity is applied to the calling of the individual. Than our text this morning. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. Here are the principles apply to the calling of God's people throughout the world. I found that very helpful. Moreover, when Jesus says "must," things happen. Now, when I say "must," things may happen, although not necessarily. For instance, I can say. I must lose 20 pounds. That is very easy to say. But if all I eat is Little Debbie Swiss rolls, it's simply not going to happen. But when Jesus says must, difficulties vanish. Mountains are torn down. Life comes out of hell, out of death. Hell is vanquished, and people believe. What wonderful things Jesus says about these sheep. In the first place, he says that he has them when he says, I have other sheep. That is, he is saying they are his already. If they were not, he would have had to have said, I will have other sheep, or I hope one day to have other sheep, assuming that things go as I hope they will go. But this is not the expression that Jesus used. Jesus says they are his, and he has them. Now, the first part of the verse deals with the other sheep who, in the context of the parable, are the Gentiles. Now, we know this from the context. The opening verses of the chapter have already spoken of one pin or fold, and that fold was Judaism. It was Christ's teaching that he had come to call those who were his own out of Judaism. The man who had been born blind was one example. The disciples were others. In the next chapter, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus also are seen to be Christ's sheep who are called out of Judaism. Now Christ teaches that there are other folds in which many more sheep must be called, the fold of the Greeks, of the Romans, of the barbarians, and others. In each of these folds, Christ has those who are his own, who have been given to him by the Father for whom he was about to die and whom he would call. These are now going to form one great flock, the church, of which he is the true shepherd. Spurgeon once wrote on this theme, Our shepherd king has greater thoughts than the most large hearted of his servants. He delights to enlarge the area of our love. Now this verse reminds us of Christ's words that are similar words that the Apostle Paul recorded in the 18th chapter of Acts. On this occasion, Paul was in Corinth having come from a not-too-successful preaching mission in Athens. Moreover, he had just experienced opposition from the Jewish population in Corinth. Now, no doubt, Paul was probably somewhat discouraged at this point. But here in Corinth, at this very point in his ministry, the Lord appeared to him by night in a vision and said, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to harm or attack you, because I have many people in this city. Many people. What a comfort that must have been to Paul. And how bold he must have been as he set out to find these sheep who belong to the fold of the great shepherd. Look at verse 17. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. Great is the mystery, Paul declared, that God left heaven and became a man. But God didn't stop there. He went lower still. He became a lamb. But he went even lower than that. Not only did God become a man and then become a lamb, but Psalm 22.6 tells us that the lamb became a worm. It reads, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Now, it makes one think, if Christ considered himself to be a worm, where does that put me? Most people, when reading this verse, think that Christ was comparing himself to a worm to show the vast difference between the reality of Almighty God and the lowliness of humanity. However, that is not necessarily the complete case. The psalmist specifies this worm to be a particular type of worm. Why? Why? The Hebrew word for worm translated in the Old Testament can be translated either with the word scarlet or with the word worm. How come? Well, to obtain the color specified for the garments of the priest and the curtains of the tabernacle throughout the book of Exodus, worms would be ground up, thereby producing a scarlet dye in which the cloth would then be dipped. Today it is known as the crimson worm. The crimson worm contains a chemical in its body that, as I said, is used to create the dye in which many people in the Mideast used to use to color their clothes. But here's what is absolutely fascinating. The female crimson worm only produces offspring once in her lifetime. She does this by firmly fastening herself to a tree. The worm knows that climbing that tree will be the very last act of her life. This act is a process, and in this process, she provides both nourishment and protection to her offspring. You see, as she lays her eggs, the worm's body, her eggs, and even a portion of the tree are covered with a crimson gel-like fluid. And that stain on the tree will never fade with age Or harsh wind now here she spins a bright scarlet cocoon around herself and inside this cocoon the scarlet worm lays her brood of baby worms now the babies have no other source of food than their mother and so they they begin to literally feed off of her live body when the baby worms reach maturity their mother dies But in the process, once again, she releases another crimson substance that irreversibly stains all of her children scarlet. And about three days later, the deceased mother, Crimson Worm, turns pure white, and her waxy corpse falls to the ground like a piece of snow. No wonder, Isaiah declares, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Now the life cycle of the scarlet worm symbolizes much of what Jesus accomplished on on the cross in our relationship with him. Christ willingly chose death on a tree for the benefit of new life that death would bring, just like the mother crimson worm. And like her, Jesus allows to eat his flesh and drink his blood during communion. Truly, Jesus was right when he declared, I am like the crimson worm. For as our high priest, he is clothed in the dye of his own blood. The spots left on the tree of Calvary being the only way that we can be born again. Great is the mystery. God became a man, became a lamb, and became a worm. Would you have done that? Not just for those you love, But as Romans 5, 6 says, Would you have done that for your worst enemy? On the eve of his crucifixion, after Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, we read these words. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall die by the sword. Or do you not think I can appeal to my father, and he will not at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which says that it must happen this way? We are told in the Gospels that Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. That tells us that his mission and his life was entirely in his hands. We are told that Jesus knew that no one had the power to take his life from him. Later on in chapter 19, standing before Pilate, we're given this account. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. What does that teach us? Simply this. Jesus was in full and ultimate control over his, to, over his death to the degree that even on the cross, we are told that Jesus gave up or surrendered his spirit. So when people say things like, Jesus was just a good man who got in over his head and got killed, that shows you the limited understanding they have of who he really is. Now earlier I said we as Christians must not divide over every non-essential issue, but that does not mean that there should never be any type of division. Verse 19 says, Therefore there was a division among them, among the Jews, because of these sayings. The Puritans rightly said that not all unity is holy, And not all division is from hell. Over and over again in John's Gospel, we see people divided because of Jesus. And there are certain things as Christians we must divide over. Like what? Well, according to one theologian that I have a lot of confidence in, he writes, the essential doctrines would be the Trinity, the virgin birth, The deity and humanity of Christ, the bodily resurrection, man's fallenness and guilt, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, and belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Actually, I think you have to add another one that strikes me as a functional necessity, and that is the ultimate authority of Scripture. You have to believe that. Why? Why? Because without that, none of those other truths can be affirmed or asserted with any type of confidence. However, in order to believe in the scripture, that is very often going to collide with this world and its secular culture. I expect that. But what baffles me is when the church tries to win the world using worldly methods. Listen to an experience of one pastor I read about this week. He writes, Our church went into a theater to watch The Passion of the Christ on its opening weekend. Afterward, we gathered for dinner, discussion, and prayer. I returned home in a somber mood, deeply reflecting upon the sacrifice of Christ. When I opened my mail that night, the first letter was from a local church inviting me to visit them. They listed the ways that they were unique from traditional churches. They laid it out like this. In our church, there is no religious dogma. We encourage the freedom of individual thought and belief. Our faith is based on celebrating the inherent worth and dignity of every person. We have warm and accessible services. Our Sunday service typically include a mix of readings, music, moments of meditation, contemplation, and a sermon. In our children's religious education program, we teach our kids to be accepting of differing beliefs and the importance of each person seeking his or her own truth. They finish by saying, So if you're looking for a congregation that cherishes freedom of belief and opinion with a warm sense of community and fellowship, please visit us. The pastor who received this then writes, I had just watched the horrific suffering of Jesus and heard him say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Hours later, I opened an invitation to visit a church group where the truth doesn't even matter. He says the contrast was overwhelming. Look at verse 20 with me. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We see that despite the undeniability of these miracles, some people still refuse to believe. This is further proof that signs and wonders do not always lead to saving faith. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament and the children of Israel. Time and time again, God performed countless miracles on their behalves. Think about this. They had just witnessed 10 supernatural plagues that they were protected from. Now they leave Egypt, and instead of having to use Google Maps, God himself would guide them supernaturally. We read this in Exodus 13:21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Can you even imagine... You would think that nothing would ever shake their faith in God again. Oh, is that not enough, God might have said? Okay, I'll now part the Red Sea so you can walk through. And as soon as you step your foot on the other side, I'm going to cause the Red Sea to collapse and drown the Egyptian army. Their response? After all God had done for his people, just three days after crossing the Red Sea, the Israelites were questioning whether or not God was going to be able to quench their thirst. Let's move ahead to chapter 16 where we read. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. How's that for revisionist history? In reality, they were oppressed slaves in Egypt and were beaten on a constant basis for not being able to keep up with the quota of their daily work. Yet in their minds, their time in Egypt was a time of comfort and plenty. Isn't this crazy? They sound like a bunch of five-year-olds on their way to Disneyland. We're hungry. We're thirsty. Are we there yet? And unlike today, Moses couldn't say, if you don't stop your complaining, I'm going to turn this car around and we're going back home. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Mean little Billy heard that quite a bit growing up. The point I'm trying to make is signs and wonders do not always generate true faith. One last example. In Luke 16, we are given the account of Lazarus and the rich man. Let me give you a quick synopsis of that. Lazarus was a beggar who would sit at the gate of this unnamed rich man. Well, they both die, and Lazarus goes to paradise, which was called Abraham's bosom, while the rich man was sent to hell. We are then given the actual conversation between the rich man and Abraham. The rich man begs for just a drop of water to to be put on his tongue. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in these flames. When Abraham explained that it was impossible because of the great chasm between the two places that was now impossible to cross, how infinitely miserable is hell it is so bad that even though this rich man is in flames and he knows that he is going to be there for eternity, he doesn't want anyone else to join him this is luke sixteen twenty seven and he said, "Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers." in order that he may warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will believe. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. What produces true faith? It is not signs and wonders. Abraham tells them in essence, they have Moses and the prophets, or we would say today, they have the Bible. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 10:17, which says, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. This morning, do you want faith or more faith? The prescription for that is the Scripture. Now, there is simply no excuse for any of us in here not to daily take in the Scripture. If you don't like to read, there are free Bible apps that will read it to you. We can take in the Scripture if we want. Now, don't tell my boss, but the last 45 minutes of my mail route, I listen to an audio Bible. That enables me to go through the Bible two times every year. Now, I'm not saying that to try to impress you. I just want you to see how easy it can be if we just take the time to do it. Look at verse 22 with me. Now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Now some see in John's reference to winter a metaphor for the Jew's spiritual state that it described not only the season of the year, but also Israel's spiritual coldness. One commentator says this, the thoughtful reader of the gospel understands that time and temperature notations in John are reflections of the spiritual condition of the persons in those stories. Now, for us, chronologically, at this point in our study, we are approximately about three and a half months away from the crucifixion. In our text, we see him leave Jerusalem, not to return back until the final week. Now, this is my opinion, but I do agree that when John declares in verse 22 that it was winter, I don't think he was simply just giving us information seasonally, but rather was providing insight into the climate of the spirits of the city at that time. You see, when Jesus walked throughout Jerusalem, it was summer the people had the opportunity to see his works to hear his words and to be gathered into his kingdom but because they rejected him as he left jerusalem i think jeremiah 8:20 to a portion was indeed fulfilled where we, where we read what i think is one of the saddest verses in all of the bible jeremiah 8:20 the harvest is past The summer has ended, and we are not saved. As we finish up this morning, we see that despite this, the people still have the nerve to ask him to plainly tell them who he is. Listen, I don't know how much plainer you can get. Jesus has repeatedly told them who he was and what his mission was, but they simply refuse to believe him. And if they had not believed by this time, nothing else he would ever say or do is going to move them. But they asked him to speak plainly, so in the second part of his answer that we'll look at next week, that is precisely what he does. As an aside, it is a dangerous thing to ask Christ to speak plainly. For when he speaks plainly, he really speaks plainly. I mean, he tells it like it is. So they say, Jesus, tell us who you are. And Jesus is going to do a little bit more than that. He's going to say, okay, as I have been saying, I am the Messiah. But I'll even go further and tell you that God and the Father and I are actually one. This sets us up to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity next week. Lord, you are the good shepherd and as I said last week, Lord, I never want to lose the wonder, as Jonathan was saying, that uh, we are one of your sheep. It is the, uh, the biggest privilege that could ever be bestowed upon a human being that you would call us by name and name us as one of yours and go further than that. and Make us co-heirs with who you are, with you being our elder brother. Give us a fresh revelation of what that means in our lives.